Hi, I'm Tyler Harris, and you're listening to the latest episode of Down in the Weeds. Today, we are talking with Mike Witt. He's an Iowa State University Extension field agronomist, and we're, we're literally going to get into the weeds today on herbicide-resistant weeds. And Mike, thanks first of all for joining us today. I, the first thing I wanted to dive into was just the background on the Iowa Pest Resistant Management Program, how it got started, and what it does, and then we can talk a little later about some of the key findings on weed resistance over the last few years. So I guess to get started, what what does the Iowa Pest Resistant Management Program do, and how did it get started? Well, yeah, the Iowa Pest Resistant Management Program actually got its start many years ago, and it was a program in which a lot of different entities across the state came together to really try to figure out a way to work with pests and manage the battle, we'll say, what is going on with this pest management and in a different way. Because a lot of times when we look at pest management, we think of it as an individual aspect, as something that is each individual farmer will do it on its own. But in reality, what they were really trying to do was look for a community-based approach or a different way to look at it so that people would understand that they're not alone. And it's not just themselves out there looking at this this problem of pest resistance. Yeah, so it, it kind of it, it was it kind of stemmed from some discussions I know that happened I think back in 2015 if I'm not mistaken, and then was officially launched in 2017. And you you've worked with a couple different groups I believe, but. I think the one, you know, in particular, and we can talk a little bit about Story County too, but I think the one in particular I wanted to get started with was Harrison County because they've obviously taken on a big task that a lot of people are paying attention to, and that's herbicide-resistant Palmer amaranth to begin with, and then that has, well, that pretty quickly evolved into herbicide-resistant water hemp, mare's tail, and giant ragweed. I wanted to ask, because that in itself is an interesting discussion, because I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Palmer amaranth was first discovered in Iowa in Harrison County. Is that correct? Yes. So Palmer amaranth first was discovered in around 2013 in Harrison County. And it was found down on the river bottom. And it was found in an area that was kind of interesting in that we weren't expecting to find it there. It was a field that had some industrial sludge that had been put on it and a couple other things that had happened to it that really the weed just kind of popped up out of nowhere. It was a very localized, small area where that was. And due to the fact that that happened in 2013, there were some eradication efforts that went on within the community. A lot of those were spearheaded by Larry Buss, which I'm sure we'll talk about Larry a little bit later. He's uh, one of the champions out here. When it comes to that, but really what they did was they tried to locally contain it. They had eradication effort, community groups coming out and hand weeding, and then also just really trying to control it, talking with Iowa State and others like that to come out and really look at that. And you're correct in that that finding of that Palmer amaranth really spurred a lot of this information with the Iowa Pestrogen and Management Plan because it when we first started in Harrison County, because like you said, it was facilitated kind of by the Iowa Department of Ag and Land Stewardship in Iowa State back in 2015 when we launched the Pest Resistance Management Plan. And with that, what we were really originally looking at out in Harrison County was we were looking at that Palmer Amaranth. That was one of the reasons why the initial pilot programs came 
out there was because of that Palmer Amaranth that we'd seen. So that Palmer Amaranth was really a catalyst for us not only joining in the effort as far as community-based approaches, but really trying to take a different way to look at it and think, well, we've got a weed that's just starting. What should we do in this? And that's a little bit different situation because if you look at a water hemp or a giant ragweed or something like that, those are more of a native plant. They've been here for a significant amount of time, even if they weren't originally here, I say native, but they've been here for a significant amount of time, whereas Palmer Amaranth was one that was really new to the environment, per se. So it was a really interesting way to look at it and way to get started in that, which you don't usually get to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, and Larry, of course, was on on the front lines of that and being vigilant about, you know, going out and hand weeding and things like that. And I think he and some others, they, they kind of knew about, I mean, they had read about Palmer Amaranth and what this weed could do once it, you know, got into an area and developed resistance They'd heard about some of the horror stories from down south. I mean, the Arkansas Delta region comes to mind where you've got Palmer amaranth weeds resistant to multiple herbicide groups in the area and, you know, leaving farmers there just with very little, if any, options to really manage it. So getting on top of it was obviously at the forefront of everybody's minds in that way. But then I think as Larry had kind of pointed out, you know, to make sure that they appealed to a broader audience because not everybody at that point had Palmer Amaranth, they've kind of expanded to work with some other weeds, water hemp, mare's tail, and giant ragweed, which everybody, as you mentioned, I mean, we we're all very familiar with those. And that kind of segs into 2018 and 2019 because in those both of those years, you have done some research, I, I think gathering some weed seeds from across Harrison County, and I believe there might have been some Palmer Amaranth there, but I think there, I know there was some water hemp. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what, you know, what, what the process was like for going out, you know, gathering those seeds. And then I, I know that the, there were some seeds that were sent to the lab at Iowa State, growing those up. What did that process look like and what, did you, what all did you find in terms of what herbicide groups these populations were resistant to? Yeah, so what we really looked at in this was when we started with the weed screening, what we wanted to really look at was we thought, okay, there's a lot of information out there that says all of these weeds, water hemp in particular, we'll just pick on that one, is resistant to Roundup. You know, there's a lot of talk on that. You can read articles on that until you're blue in the face, we'll say, with those. But at the end of the day, does that really occur in Harrison County? You know, is that something that really matters here? Or is it something that people just talk about that, you know, well, it really isn't a thing for us. We don't have that. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to kind of dispel that myth and let people know that, hey, this isn't just something you read in the newspaper. We know we talk about it. This is in your backyard. So what we did was we went out and we took some random samples and we took some selected samples, we'll say on that. With the Palmer Amaranth, we knew where there were Palmer Amaranth populations. So with the Palmer Amaranth, we went out and we were like, okay, we know where there's field. We know where there is some. It's not as widespread as water hemp or giant ragweed. So, you know, we'll take those selected populations and we'll screen those. And we'll see what's going on with that. Then we took the random populations, we'll say, and those were ones in which we would go out and we would find just water implants or areas within fields that seem 
seemed like there were having um, some resistance issues, we'll say, some areas in the field that might be more overrun with weeds, not just wet spots, areas that you wouldn't think would have a weed pressure issue after they'd already been sprayed. So again, we took some of those, took some of those populations, and then we sent them off to Iowa State. They did some grow outs at Iowa State, and we screened them. And initially, what we did was we looked at just three different, shall we say, herbicides. We looked at Roundup, we looked at, which is a group nine, we looked at Cobra, which is a group 14, and we looked at Callisto, which is a group 27. And initially, we looked at those on those initial populations to look at the percentage of weed survival in there to see how they did, if they were really good, if they were really bad, kind of just to get not necessarily a scientific discovery, but to more get just a general idea of what, what it was looking at across the county. And what we found was that water hemp with that methodology of sampling, taking it to Iowa State, they would do grow outs. We had anywhere from uh, 100% to 75% to percent weed survival of that. So that was with Roundup. Again, with some Cobra, some Group 14s, we had anywhere from very little. We had some that would be about 10% survival, the ones that were 100%. And then with the Callisto, again, we had some in a, one of the Palmer Amaranth populations that was resistant to a Group 27 but we had also one that it could be controlled with Roundup as well. So it was really just a, an interesting smattering of weed survival in there. Like I said, it's not a really scientific resistance screening that we did, but that was our initial test. The next thing that we did was we upped that and took samples again, more of a random sample the next year, and we saw even more of, shall we say, that resistance and things like that growing over some of the next years that we had with that resistance in, in 2019, some of those confirmed populations. I wanted to ask about, because this is, you know, this is the thing that I think when it, when it really starts to drive the point home, but when we have, because obviously there are the group nines, which, you know, there's a significant portion of the population that, that was co collected, I believe, in 2019 that was resistant to, but then, then there were those populations, a smaller amount, that were resistant to, they had, I, I believe it was three or four-way resistance. Is that is that correct? Uh, yes. There was a percentage of the population that had two, three, and four-way stack resistances that we had going on out there. Yeah. So that is something we're seeing, although it is in a smaller percentage of the overall population of, um, I think it, I think that was in water hemp. That, I might be wrong on that, but. No, that, that, that was correct. So what okay. we saw in 2019, was really we saw most of the populations that we selected out there. Now, again, these populations, when we were looking at these, these are probably 30 to 40 populations that we selected across specifically Harrison County, north, south, east, west, all around Harrison County. So it's really just a snapshot of Harrison County, but it is something that can be, if you look at it, Harrison County with Waterham probably isn't any different than other counties in the state or other counties most places. It's a good example of what's going on. It's not going to be 100% the same as everywhere, but it's a good example. So what we saw was we saw all those populations that we took, about 100% of those were resistant to Group 2 and Group 5. And again, that's not a shocking thing. There's a lot of that. And that confirmed resistance was to a 
4x rate of those individual herbicides. Now, when we have a three-way resistance, which would be a group 2, a group 5, and then we get into a group 9, which is our glyphosate, then we have probably around 75% of those populations were listed as resistant to all three of those that we have in there as far as those modes of action. So, again, that's something that we saw. But the kicker that we saw that we weren't really anticipating, but we did end up seeing was there were some populations that were susceptible to 2,4-D and dicamba. And what I mean by that is we did some testing, and there was a low percentage, 5 to 10% of those populations survived a 2,4-D and a dicamba screen at a 1x rate, and the thresholds of 30%, I guess we will say 30% of those survived to regrow and produce seed of those 2,4-D and dicamba. So we're not ready to call those resistant, but what we are doing is those have been kept at Iowa State. They're regrowing them in the lab again, letting the seeds grow up, replanting them, and they're going to test those again this year to see, well, what is our percentage of those survivors? And again, that was at a 1x rate. We're going to bump that up to a 4x rate of dosage on the 2,4-D and dicamba, which is pretty standard in some of these herbicide screens that go on to really see are we really starting to see the beginning of this resistance occurring or is it something else with susceptibility of those populations? But either way, it's a really interesting thing that we were able to note out there in the environment. Yeah, absolutely. That'll be that'll be really interesting to see how that plays out here over the next year. And that brings me to the next question I wanted to ask is is about seed viability. Because I, I think I, I know that there were some things this over this last year, I believe, that Larry had done to kind of just just look into the viability of seed from weeds that had been sprayed with certain chemistries. But also I wanted to ask about viability just seed viability if we're talking about longevity and um how long that seed can survive in the ground if it happens to be buried. If we're talking about some of these problem weeds like Palmer amaranth and water hemp, what, what have you seen, you know, and, and what does the research show over time that how, you know, in terms of longevity among those weeds, what, what does that also mean then for certain methods for control? Because I know there there are some folks, you know, and and you know, Larry will talk about this that in in that if we if we run out of options in places like the Lust Hills in Harrison County, and Harrison County has a lot of river bottom ground too, but if we're talking about the Lust Hills, which are highly erodible, then there may be some people who might unfortunately have to resort to tillage to manage some of those weeds. And, and, and I guess, what, yeah. yeah, so the reason I ask is that, you know, if we resort to tillage is, I mean, and, and we're talking about things like seed viability, how, how does that seed viability work against that as a, as a control method? Well, what, one of the things that we have with the, shall we say with the water hemp and some of that, is water hemp produces millions and millions of seed within those seed heads. And the viability of those seeds can be anywhere from four to six years, maybe even a little longer, and that's just that specific weed. So when we look at some of the different weed portfolios and the weed profile there, it's really interesting because when Larry's talking about utilizing tillage and those other methods, the biggest issue that we have in Harrison County, which kind of makes it a microcosm, is that we have those lush hills, like you said, 
and they are really, really highly erodible. And that sand, that um, soil is very easy to lose, we will say. So that is why tillage isn't necessarily a viable option out there for that. Now, if you're listening to this, I'm originally from north-central Iowa, so you get up in that area, flat, black, deep soils and things like that, tillage is still a practice that can be utilized in there. And, you know, some people might say we should move away from that, and others will say, well, I'm going to use it every year. Up there, it's a different situation. Whereas, again, out in the western Iowa, you have to have different situations. So that weed seed viability is important in that you can be really good for one year, you can be really good for two years, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to solve the problem when it comes to that. So this is where resistance management really matters, is that weed seed bank is full. We can start to reduce it and things like that, but it's really hard when you get escapes, even for one or two years, that can really fill that weed seed bank back up pretty quick. Yeah, and I wanted to ask, too, about some of the strategies that were effective in, in controlling weeds. Because I think, you know, as you mentioned, you know, when we're talking about a viability of four or six years, if we can kind of manage that weed seed bank, then, then it is something that, you know, with the right strategies that we can get on top of, at least locally, because it is a community effort, and I realize that. But if we're talking about kind of that localized approach, what are some of those methods for weed control that have worked very well? And I'm asking you specifically about practices like overlapping residuals, which I know is something that works very well when when put into place, and even with some of these weeds that are resistant to glyphosate, for example. Yeah, so some of the methodologies that have worked really well in the past have involved herbicides. You know, herbicides are a good thing. You know, they've helped us a lot in those situations, but just just doing it without any management won't work. So like you said, one of the first things that we always talk about or that is very important is to have a clean seed bed at the very beginning of the season. So that is a very important thing to do, whether it's with a burn down or whether it's with your pre-emergence herbicides that have good residual that will extend out into the season. Starting off with a good bait is very important. And then again, like you said, when you get into the mid-season, some of the things you can do with those herbicides is you can do the layered residual in that you will come in and make sure you can try to stagger that so that you have a longer residual, but you might wait to spray that a little bit later in the season or hold off with that. Or instead of coming back with just a post-emerge situation uh, to try to clean things up, post-emerge, mixed with something that's got a little bit of residual in it. You know, there's a lot of different options and things like that, depending on what you're looking at, corn and soybeans, that have those options in there. And I'm probably not going to go into all different herbicides you can do that with. But, again, layering that going in there, having that extended out is something that works really well, especially with water hemp in those situations, because it is going to be a weed that is going to keep emerging throughout the season, going out in there. Now, it's going to keep emerging basically in until August and other things like that. Another approach that you might say, which doesn't necessarily, like we've talked about, we haven't found a weed that's allergic to steel yet um, when it comes to tillage and those things. That works. It really does. But, again, it has to be dependent on where you're looking at in those situations. The reason why I bring that up is because Harrison County and its diversity in the Lust Hills there might not be very much tillage that goes on. However, in the flat river bottoms there, 
which is a good percentage of the county, there is tillage that goes on down there for weed control. So again, even within one county, there there's a lot of different situations that you can look at in there, but they don't there isn't a one size fits all for all those approaches. That's absolutely true. Yeah. And and especially when we're talking about the less hills, I think one of the options that I mean, I don't know of many growers who, I mean, that, that use cover crops as their primary means of weed control. And I don't, in Iowa, I think your options would be fairly limited in that regard just because we don't have a huge window for establishment like some of our neighbors to the south do. But one of the things that the Harrison County group is looking at is cover crops. And, and you know, what, what, to what extent do, does a cereal rye cover crop help suppress weeds and kind of knock back that weed seed bank and help us get a cleaner early start is that am i kind of understanding that correctly and yeah so what we're doing this year is it's really a small scale approach to what we're looking at we're taking the approach of we're a farmer who is just trying business is what we are really looking at this year and what we're doing is we're looking at we went out and we drilled some rye at a one bushel rate and a two bushel rate out there, uh, bushel per acre rate. So we were just going to go out there, drill that in, and look and see, does that help with weed pressure in a specific field? The field that we are looking at, the field where we're going to have our spring field day, uh, or our summer field day, excuse me, where this is going to be at, you know, it has significant weed pressure. I'm sure Larry Buss, who owns the field, won't like me saying that, but it does have significant weed pressure. So we're looking at that as far as, Will that cover crop take care of some of that weed issue, or will it not? So one of the things we're doing is we let the cover crop grow. We didn't do anything too crazy with it. We uh, terminated it at about a normal termination time when it was about six inches tall, and then we went out and we planted, and the soybeans are growing up in it. Uh, and so there's a lot of different ways, a lot of different methods to do that. You can let that cover crop grow really tall, you can plant it, obviously, aerial seeding. You can also do the drill seeding. We drilled ours in the fall and let it grow. Some of the biggest issues we have with this is, like you said, getting a consistent cover crop growth. Because unless you can get a really consistent cover crop map growth going in there, it's really hard to get consistent results on weed suppression. Now, Dr. Prashant Jha out of Iowa State, he is doing more research as we speak on different methodologies of cover crops for weed suppression in soybean. So there is research that's going on with that as far as different rates, different seeding times, different row spacings, and other things like that, termination time as well, really to look at some of those and get a better idea on some of those environmentally, you know, for the state of Iowa, but in Harrison County locally, Again, we're just going to grow it up, see what we've got going on there, see if that's a method that can be used and help with that. Because there's a lot more people using cover crop, especially in the Lus Hills of Harrison County and a lot of surrounding counties um, where there's hilly regions. They've seen the benefits of those cover crops for erosion control and those other things. And if we can figure out a way to also get some good weed control with it, that might be able to offset some of those costs of planting, some of those costs that are associated with it, that might make it more of a attractive thing for other farmers to, to start using. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And like you said, there are, there are so many variables that can come into play when we're talking about how, how effective a cover crop is in terms of suppressing weeds, but it will be really interesting to see that from Prashant Jaw's research. But also, I, I think when you have something that's happening on the farm, at, like at Larry Buses, I think when, when other farmers can see that, that speaks volumes to how effective something is. You know, if it's something that works for a neighbor, you know, it's something, it's, it's, you're more apt to adopt it and try it for yourself. Oh, I, w I would 100% agree on that. There is, there is a lot of things you can find on the internet. You can find somebody who is successful at everything, and you can find somebody who fails at everything. <laughs> but a lot of times you have to really read into those and figure out, well, somebody might have been very successful at some method of cover crops. They could be in Pennsylvania or North Carolina or Ontario, Canada. It worked great for them. Well, that's not Iowa. That's not our backyard. Whereas this group, one of the main things about it is we are showing situations in our backyard. In Harrison County, rural Iowa, this is where it is. This is what we're looking at. There isn't, you know, a lot of stuff coming from other places outside sources. If you want to see it, it's right there. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, Harrison County in itself is, is, a, is very diverse in terms of topography and soils. And changing gears a little bit, I wanted, to, I wanted to talk a little bit about plant pathogen resistance and fungicide resistance. And because I know when we're talking about, especially another part of Harrison County, when we get onto the river bottoms, that is something where, I, I, if, if I understand correctly, there, there are more people that apply fungicides and on some of those river bottoms because it is a somewhat wetter environment and there's a lot of irrigation there as well. In fact, the last time I had checked on the statistics, I think Harrison County has the most irrigated acres of any county in Iowa. But how, how, what, what does this research in terms of fungicide resistance entail in plant pathogens? What are you looking at here for the 2021 season? Well, what we're getting, we're just kind of dipping our toe in the water when it comes to some of those things. There has been some frog eye resistance that has been docu well documented by Darren Mueller, Allison Robertson, and other folks at Iowa State, and it has been documented within the state of Iowa. So it is out there. We know what's out there as far as some of that resistance to strobilarins and things like that. So we know that that is going on out there. So what we are really looking at this year is we are looking at we're probably going to apply some fungicides to some fields out there. We're going to see what is our level of resistance that we've got going on out there in the field. And what are we seeing as far as disease pressure? and a lot of those other factors. So it's a little different when it comes to fungicides because with fungicides, we don't just want to go out and spray fungicides on top of everything as an insurance policy. That is the ultimate way that you are going to get resistance to build up really, really fast. When you just apply and apply and apply when they're not a needed situation. So that's how we get in trouble with anything, that's how resistance forms rather quickly. Yeah. So with this, this year, what we're going out and we're looking at, we're doing it in a small plot situation. So we're going to go out and apply some of those fungicides, and then we're going to do some looking and seeing, okay, what are we getting for these fungicides? What was our disease pressure? Because right now we don't know if there is disease pressure, but in order for us to look, we have to apply and see. So that, that's one of the things that we're doing this year is trying to figure out, okay, we do, are we going to have this disease? What is the pressure that we have? And then 
how well does this fungicide help in that situation? Did it help really good? Or did we see something that might resemble resistance to this fungicide that we applied out there? We haven't got all of the fungicides nailed down yet, exactly what we're doing if we're using single or multiple modes of action. We're still working on that. My guess is we're going to use a single just so that we can make an attempt to see if the, the ability of that to control that fungicide if it happens to be out there. But the main takeaway that I would have is we're doing this on a smaller area. We're not out there promoting, hey, just go out and put fungicide out because beans are a really good price right now. Or corn is really good price right now. Let's just go put fungicide on for insurance. That's yeah. the last thing that we're doing. We're really looking at this year to try to see, does it make a difference? And is there something we need to worry about locally as far as some of those reasons? Well, and I wanted to ask a little bit about about the different, um, I guess, the different scenarios that, that, that you're looking at this in. Are you looking at it in soybeans and corn or... Are you looking at it in on river bottom ground or the hills or both? Well, what we're really looking at this year, like I said, we're just we're just dipping the toe in the water. It's not, okay. it's not overly robust with what we're looking at. And we're just really looking at it as far as soybeans right now for this year. That's what we're looking at is the soybean situation. We're not going into the corn situation. We're just looking at soybeans for 2021. Okay. And as far as location, I believe we might have two locations, one in the river bottoms and one up in the hills. The one that is in the river bottoms is a non-irrigated field, I believe, in the river bottoms. So, again, where we don't have the irrigation factor that's going in. Well, and, and that, you know, rain-fed is obviously going to be a little bit more relevant to most Iowa growers. But I, I, I think the reason I brought that up was just for the, for the reason that under under an irrigated scenario, you could see where there would be a stronger likelihood for uh, for pathogens to move in. But the last thing I wanted to touch on, Mike, is and this goes back to your first point, which I really like. I don't think uh, this isn't something we want to overlook, but the overall community wide approach to the Iowa Pest Resistant Management Program. Why why is it so important to look at pest resistance overall from a community wide perspective? Well, one of the biggest things for me that I really like about this program is the community approach, like you said, and what what I like the most about it is that you don't have to feel alone in this situation. Yeah. You know, you can have a bad field, and you can understand that, you know what, it's okay, somebody else has a bad field. We can talk about it. There's other methods that we can come together, we can learn from each other to combat these weeds. You know, there's not, if you have a bad field of weeds, does that mean that you are going to spread that weed seed all the way across the county? That's not how that works. Not at all. But what we are saying is if you're struggling or if you're having an issue or if you're seeing, I'm getting resistance that, that is developing, well, guess what? A neighbor five miles away might be developing resistance too. That doesn't mean you are a bad farmer. That doesn't mean things are terrible. It means you now have a situation that you need to deal with. And there are others in the community who are dealing with that same situation. Farmers are, in essence, a whole lot of individual business. Yep. Everyone does things their own way. They're all their individual entities trying to make the most profit. And understanding that making the most profit doesn't mean that you have to be silent when talking with your neighbors. It doesn't mean Everything has to be secretive, especially 
in the methodology of weed and pest control and weed and pest management because everyone is dealing with the same things in there. Now, if you've got a super secret fertilizer that you put on or a super secret hybrid you plant to get 500 bushels of the acre of corn, which no one has, but if you were to have that, I could maybe understand why you wouldn't want to broadcast that mountaintop, but helping each other control water hemp and control fungicides and things like that, that's something that as a group we need to work together to do that because more minds are better than individuals. The teamwork approach in that situation is something that everyone can benefit from. And that's one of the things about this program that I really, really like and that we really try to promote. Yeah, it, it is something that, I mean, it's something that affects everyone. So, I mean, if, you know, a water hemp population gets out of control and resistant in one field and then spreads resistant either resistance either through pollen or seed to a neighboring field, you know, it, it is it's something that absolutely affects the whole community. So, yeah, it's very important from that standpoint. And from, you know, I, I think that's just a great overall message in the in the farm community when we're talking about an issue like this is finding finding some advice from the neighbor down the road you know it is certainly a good thing especially when it's such a wicked problem as weed resistance because this is something that affects everybody absolutely on that even though it's a small percentage that might be a pollen or weed feed jump there's other ways that things move when you hook up equipment you drive down the road you can drop seeds weeds have evolved over the years and have, have been winning this battle because they're really good at surviving. So we have to take a different approach at times to figure out how to combat those weeds because we can't just keep doing the same thing over and over again thinking we're going to get a different result. You know, we have to think outside the box and work in different methods. And a lot of times when you work together, you can find those methods quite a bit easier. Yeah, it's when it comes to weeds and, and how they develop resistance and how they spread, I, I, I've heard a lot of people liken it to Dr. Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park, the speech he gives about how life finds a way. And it's and, and I think there I don't think there's a better analogy than that because that's weeds are survivors, like you said. And they've been known that they they're they're around because they've managed to survive for so long in different environments. And it's, it's, I mean, it is, it's a wicked problem and it's something that it takes a community to, to address. So, well, thanks so much for joining us today, Mike. Listeners can learn more in an upcoming print issue of Wallace's Farmer and online at wallacesfarmer.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and thank you for listening to the latest episode of Down in the Weeds. <laughs>